One of my earliest and most vivid memories of Nicaragua has to do with dogs. I was just 18 at the time. Five years later, I would take a job and, and move there. But this time, I was just there for two weeks to help build a community center in a remote area on the Atlantic coast. I had sneaked out to corrals with the local teenagers, and I was making my way back to my host family's home late at night down dark, winding, muddy, and unfamiliar roads. And suddenly, I sensed a presence behind me. And I turned to see this large, mangy, emaciated dog slinking towards me in the moonlight, about 20 feet behind me. His fur was gray and patchy, and his tail was tucked. His head was held low, but his pale yellow eyes were fixed intently on me. He bared his teeth and let out a low growl. I turned and kept walking, trying to keep calm, picking up my pace a bit. I looked over my shoulder a moment later and saw that another dog had joined him. Then another appeared out of the shadows. Then another. Then another. Eventually, there were six or so dogs all trotting in formation behind me. Soon, they were, gradually, they were closing in on me. Soon, they were within a foot or two. They started to bark and snarl and took turns nipping at my heels. At that point, I broke into a swift sprint. But so did they. Fortunately, after several blocks, to my great relief, they lost interest and gave up. But I kept running for a while, just in case, until they were almost out of sight. And I swear, I could almost hear them laughing in the distance. That was my first experience with the stray dogs of Nicaragua, but not my last. Dogs in Nicaragua are a ubiquitous nuisance. They are everywhere, ever-present, scavenging, begging, biting and barking, spreading disease and fleas as they go in the marketplace, in the street, and under every table. They are as numerous there as the mosquitoes, and twice as aggressive. When North Americans travel to Nicaragua, they tend to feel sorry for these pathetic-looking creatures and are understandably horrified when they see people throw rocks and boiling water at dogs. Or else they find it comical when they see someone going for their morning jog carrying an enormous stick for self-defense but they do not understand that they, and not the Nicaraguans, are the strange ones. In most parts of the world, and for most of history, dogs have not been thought of as pets in the way we think of them. They have not been the fluffy, docile companions or fonts of unconditional love we've come to expect. They've certainly not been thought of as man's best friend, or anyone else's for that matter. They have been wild animals, pests who pose a threat to the peace and well-being of the people. So when Jesus says it is not fair to take the children's food and throw it to the dogs, this is the sort of dog he has in mind, an aggressive, mangy, scavenging mutt that begs and steals food, bites and carries disease, barks and bothers. This was a real insult. It wasn't enough to say that she wasn't kindred or that he wouldn't help her. Just to make his point crystal clear, he called her a dog. A dog. What on earth 
is going on here. This is not the perfectly gentle, loving, compassionate Jesus I learned about in Sunday school. So what are we to make of this? Is this a Messiah that we can get behind? On first read, I don't feel so certain. This woman was to Jesus an outsider. She was a woman in a patriarchal society, so desperate to find her daughter's cure that she was willing to address a man, a rabbi, what's more, in public, despite possible repercussions. A woman from another ethnic and religious group with whom the Jews shared a complicated history. Her cultural location and her daughter's illness would have made her, in the eyes of some, unclean or impure. She was an other in every sense of the word, exactly the sort of person we would expect Jesus to stand up for and serve. But he doesn't, at least not at first. Which is probably why most interpretations of this text revolve around explaining away Jesus' behavior. Jesus was showing the woman the importance of persevering in faith, they say, or testing her to see how far she would go, how much trust she would put in God. But I confess these sort of interpretations always fall a little short for me. They always seem sort of unsatisfying. Hard as it may be for some Christians to swallow, I find myself favoring the kind of interpretation that acknowledges the complex truth that Jesus was a human being. Subject, as scripture shows us, to hunger, thirst, and fatigue, to irritability and needing time alone, to being overcome at times with grief or swept up in anger. And if subject to all this, then perhaps susceptible to moments of impatience and unkindness and even maybe to the sorts of bigotries or xenophobias which most of us do harbor in some measure. And if Jesus had the capacity for all of this, then maybe he also had the capacity for a kind of repentance, for having his mind changed through an encounter with the other, for learning, for being transformed, converted in some sense to a larger, more inclusive vision of the commonwealth of God. Maybe Jesus was hungry that day, or angry or tired. Maybe he had some preconceived notions which led him to insult this woman. And maybe she gave him a wake-up call. Maybe suddenly he saw in her face the face of God. And maybe she changed his mind. I guess what attracts me to this kind of interpretation, apart from the fact that it just makes Christ more vulnerable, more human, and so more accessible for people like us, is that it shines a light on our responsibility to reach across the dividing walls, whether of wealth or race, religion or what, to seek relationship between the haves and the have-nots, between the movers and shakers and those moved and shaken against their will, 
between those with the money, power, and or resources to effect change and the oppressed and exploited people of the world. It highlights the importance of speaking truth to power, of getting, by any means necessary, the attention of those in a position to help. It reminds us that if we ask and keep asking, seek and keep seeking, knock and keep knocking, if we are diligent, if we are tenacious, if we persist, help will come. If we have the courage to stand before even our God and make demands in the name of the dignity and value with which she has bestowed us, in the name of who and whose we are, relief will be given. Relationships will be put right. It shows us that we have a great deal to learn from stray dogs. This need, I think, is reflected in what we are seeing now in London. British Deputy Prime Minister Nick Clegg referred to what is happening there as, quote, needless opportunistic theft and violence, nothing more, nothing less, end quote. A few crazy people caught up in a crazy moment, a mob mentality. But journalist and activist Darkus Howe characterized it differently. He called it a kind of insurrection. When so much violence is being perpetrated by so many simultaneously, he challenged, the experience from which that anger and indignation originate must also be on some level simultaneous and shared. When the young black man and father of four, Mark Duggan, was killed by police, the disenfranchised youth of London related. They had empathy. Their disillusionment with Scotland Yard and the media following the, the cell phone hacking scandal, their fraught relationship with the police, their increasing frustration with severe budget cuts to social services and tax cuts for corporations, and severe and growing disparity of wealth all came to a head in the disorder which dominated London last week. And I don't say any of this to condone in any way the violence and destruction perpetrated or to suggest that the perpetrators should not be held in some way accountable for their actions. But, as John F. Kennedy said, and as Martin Luther King Jr. repeated in the quote that's printed on the front of your bulletin, those who make peaceful revolution impossible will make violent revolution inevitable. It appears that, sadly, this group felt so powerless that they could see no other way to speak truth to power, to demand help, from those with the ability to address their concerns, so they resorted to theft and violence. Bystanders became rioters as they watched the police crack down. One young social worker was arrested for stealing a TV, which she later said she didn't need or want, simply because she was so overcome with emotion. The dynamic was 
similar, I think, in Tunisia, where one man's despair and frustration with the police and the oppressive power structure led him to take his own life by self-immolation, setting himself on fire. This inspired copycats, which in turn sparked a full-scale revolution. And as the media disseminated images of what was happening in Tunisia, revolution sprang up in Egypt, Libya, Yemen, Jordan, Bahrain, and Syria. This is a global trend worth paying attention to. And we all know that the situation here in the U.S. is very different from in those in these other places. And it's very tempting to say that this sort of disorder could never happen here. But I fear that would be a dangerous delusion. Broadcaster Tavis Smiley and intellectual Cornell West have recently launched their Poverty, a call to conscience tour to highlight the plight of poor people in this country in the midst of this recession and beyond. Smiley said this in response to the recently passed debt ceiling legislation, which took Republicans and Democrats so long to agree upon. Quote, any legislation that doesn't extend unemployment benefits, doesn't close a single corporate loophole, doesn't raise one cent of new revenue from taxes on the rich or lucky, allows corporate America to get away scot-free again. The banks, Wall Street, getting away again. And all these cuts ostensibly on the backs of everyday people. The poor are feeling more and more invisible. The worst thing you can do to a human being is to make him or her feel invisible as if they don't matter, as if they're throwaway, as if they're disposable. And too many Americans are feeling that right now." End quote. A little more than a month ago, Kelly Thomas, a schizophrenic homeless man, was brutally beaten and tased to death by six police officers in Fullerton, California, while he pleaded with them and called out for his dad. They suspected that he may have been breaking into cars. The day may come when others in this nation will relate to this story or to a story like it the way they did with Mohamed Bouazizi in Tunisia or Mark Duggan in England, and they will empathize and they will share in the anger and righteous indignation. And our nation may find itself faced with the choice between violence and peace. At the risk of sounding like <clears throat> one of those street and subway preachers who most all New Yorkers, myself included, are well-trained to dismiss, maybe now is a time to repent. Now, I don't mean this in a sort of misguided and irresponsible interpretation of repentance that so many Christians and others have come to accept. 
to feel bad or sorry or ashamed. I mean the real Greek word as it appears in Scripture, metanoia, to change our thinking, to be transformed, to get beyond, to turn around in our minds, in our hearts, in such a way that our lives will never be the same. And some of us are lucky. We receive this kind of repentance as the result of some life-changing event, some wake-up call, a near-death experience, the loss of a loved one, a deep heartbreak, or some epiphany, some inspired moment of revelation. But if we spend our lives waiting for that sort of change, we may be waiting forever. And so the only reliable way I know of repenting is regular practice, creating a discipline in one's life whether it's going to 12-step meetings, meditating or working out, pursuing justice and the common welfare in the way you eat, shop, and vote, giving a portion of your income to the church or to some other nonprofit that serves the people, challenging yourself to find your voice and hear the voices of those who have been silenced, engaging as best we can, this complex combination of holding the powers that be accountable and accepting personal responsibility. Or this, maybe most importantly of all, modeling within yourself, within your own life and your relationships with others, the kind of world that somewhere deep down, we all want to live in. The kind of justice, respect, peace, healing, and wholeness, and love we each want. Being as consistent as we can be, getting back to the path when we wander off course, getting up and dusting ourselves off when we fall down, supporting each other in the journey. Practice, practice, practice even if it feels insincere or hopeless, faking it till we make it. As one famous football coach said, practice doesn't make perfect, it makes permanent. This isn't quite true, of course, because so long as we are breathing, most anything can be undone in our hearts and in our minds. We can be reprogrammed but the point still stands. Our lives, our world will reflect the patterns, the thought and behavior cycles which we practice most often and with the greatest consistency. The only way to get close to where we want to be, to God's vision of what we could be, is to think and live and act as if we already are. then help will come. Then perhaps we can do as I was instructed on that first trip to Nicaragua by a Moravian pastor called Norman Bent who said, quote, perhaps it is time to stop eating the crumbs of the master. Perhaps now we must bake our own bread and invite the master to eat with us. End quote. 
before this passage in the book of Matthew, Jesus fed the 5,000 of his people who had gathered to hear him preached. And afterwards, there were 12 baskets remaining. After this passage, there is a second miracle. He feeds 4,000 more. And this time, there were only seven baskets remaining. In the Holy Scripture, the number seven is the number of perfection, completion. All were fed. All had something to eat. If Jesus can be converted, what's to stop us?